Welcome to the opening episode of the Coaching and Mentoring Podcast Season 2. My name's Dave T, Chair of the Wales Coaching Centre at the University of South Wales. We provide coaching, mentoring and supervision, working with individual practitioners to develop their coaching and mentoring expertise and with organisations to help their coaching and mentoring practice to flourish. Our focus today is on leader performance and our very special guest is Miles Downey. Often referred to as the coach's coach, Miles was the founder of one of the first coach development businesses in Europe, the School of Coaching. Miles has written the seminal coaching book, Effective Coaching, and also the books Effective Modern Coaching and Enabling Genius, The Mindset for Success in the 21st Century, which I hope we'll be touching upon in our conversation today. We're also going to talk about how coaching might provide a scaffolding for the coach to safely allow a leader to explore the upper reaches of their potential to deliver results. Thank you for joining us today, Miles. It's a real pleasure. Thank you, David. Could we start, please, by asking you about your background and what led you to develop an interest in coaching? It was a coincidence and a fortunate one. I studied architecture after I left school, and in order to keep body and soul together in the holidays, I would teach tennis. And I played competitive tennis to kind of, I guess, the equivalent of what you'd call county level in the UK. And I bumped into a book called The Inner Game of Tennis by Timothy Galway. And it made a really interesting distinction between the inner and the outer. And my outer game was not perfect, but was adequate. And it became clear as I turned each page and clearer and clearer that the problems were on the inner side. My approach to tennis, my mental approach to tennis at least, how I understood winning or, or didn't understand winning and ability to concentrate, all kinds of things. And that then became something that surpassed architecture in terms of interest. So I came to London from Dublin and trained with Graham Alexander and Alan Fine. Graham went on to set up the Alexander Corporation, which was probably the first coaching house doing executive coaching, and asked me to join him. So I'd, you know, I'd kind of serve my apprenticeship as a tennis coach using inner game approaches back in Ireland and spread my wings. I had a, a wonderful moment with one of my clients in Ireland who, on the tennis court, understood that I was doing something that was different and said, what's the application to my golf? So we had a brief conversation. He said, well, okay, give me a golf lesson. So I did that and his golf improved. Then he said, what's the application to my business? I said, yeah, we can do something about that. And we, the first thing we did was we set some goals for his business. And he fired me after three months because he had achieved his goals. <laughs> so that was, that was, it was really instructive. And, and I realized that I was kind of only beginning to learn how to do that. So when Graham set up the Alexander Corporation, asked me to join, I was, I was thrilled. This was the other blessing in all of this, was that one of his clients was McKinsey, the Global Strategic Management Consultancy. And to their credit, they realized that I, I, this kind of naive Irishman was not going to survive inside the glorious halls of McKinsey if I didn't understand their culture. So they put me on an induction program. And what I learned through that was that it's all right and great to be a good coach, but if you don't have the capacity to consult to the organization and understand what the organization's needs are and bring the needs of the player, the person in front of you, the person you're coaching and the organization together, you're never going to win. Most of the problems that I've encountered as a coach are probably split 30% 
between the player, the person in front of me, and 70% about managing the organization around them. And the organization is usually less likely to and willing to change than the person you're coaching. So it was salutary. After that, I kind of left and set up the School of Coaching, where we helped train coaches or aspiring coaches to be able to do that. Huge focus on skill, uh, not, nothing very academic around it. We, we were really focused on just helping people become skillful. And equally, we started training then managers and, and senior leaders in coaching skills as part of the way they go about their business. I sold that in 2010 or 11. And the last few years, I've been doing something which is about using coaching online, which maybe we'll talk about later. It was really driven by just interest and being fortunate. As many people who do things that are maybe slightly different, they, they, there is an element of coincidence and good luck in it. And that certainly happened to me. Thank you. Thank you. So architecture's loss is coaching's gain. You can say that. <laughs> Our focus in this conversation is on leader performance. And anyone who has a look at your CV, you, you've worked at the C-suite level across a very impressive range of different sectors and client organizations. I'm aware that both the notion of performance and of leadership are vast. So what is it that you particularly mean when you are talking about leader performance? Well, at, at one level, I'm trying to create a distinction. And that at another level, there's a kind of a body of knowledge that's grown over the years about how to help leaders perform. So the distinction is that much of coaching, as it is consumed in the corporate world, is about development, learning and development. And coaches increasingly have tools, uh, you know, psychometrics and whatever else. Organizations have their competencies and whatever else. And, and we're coaching, you know, many people are coaching to those things. And that's all, all well and good. It's great. It was never what interested me. And I kind of, if, if I'm to be slightly controversial, if I told Eddie Jones, whom I know a bit, the, the English uh, rugby head coach, you know, if, if he saw, or at least if he, if he saw the, the, much of the coaching that went on, he'd be a bit surprised because despite what people say, there isn't much attention on result. So leader performance says it, it's not leadership performance, it's leader performance. It's, it's you, mister, the leader, and helping you perform and achieve the results that will satisfy you, your team, and the organization for which you work. And it starts with, so what's, what's our job? What are, what are we here to do? What are we here to change? What are we here to achieve? And that's what, frankly, that's what interests me as, as a coach. I've launched in my career three banks and two private equity firms. One of the banks was quite big. It came out of Prudential, it was known as Egg before it was then sold on as various other things. And it's been, you know, just it's it's an amazing thing to to work with a, a leader and their team, and then to go and see their call center in Derby. I find that exciting. I also find there's a kind of an honesty to it, which is that it clarifies what the relationship is about and helps make distinctions, which are more and more difficult to make between coaching and a therapeutic or, or psychological intervention. And I find that refreshing. So leader performance is about helping leaders perform. If there is a development need, and there always is, then it's in service of what the goal is. The consequence of that is people are much more willing to change their behavior in order to achieve a goal rather than to comply with a competency. 
So that's, that's what that's about. The content side of it is that I'm kind of creating a body of knowledge that has very much a how-to focus, so tools and exercises that allow people to take leaders to a place where they're really at the edge of their abilities and, their, and, and kind of moving into the areas of their potential. And I, and I kind of, I've got a notion around that about kind of, there's, there needs to be safety in that because leader performance means that you're challenging and pushing people more and you've got to be able to do that in a safe way. So not based on any, any prejudice, projection or whim. So that, that, that content is also part of leader performance. And, and that, you know, in, a, in the event we're going to be running in March, that's going to be there to be discussed and explored. Thank you for mentioning that. And we're very excited to have you as a, a keynote at the Wales Coaching Conference in March this year. And uh, my understanding that during that, you'll be mentioning your effective coaching model. Could you tell our listeners more about the model, please? It's difficult to do without a graphic, but absolutely. Because what it came from was the kind of the very difficult discussion to have in the world of coaching. And when I say the world of coaching, I also embrace within that people like ICF and EMCC and Apex, all these good organizations that, you know, that really strive to do a good job. This was true, perhaps more true in the past than it is now, about the, those people who were wedded to uh, methods of coaching that would be called non-directive. And it seemed to me that non-directive, which is, I guess, the school to which I broadly belong in terms of those classifications, but it's always felt an uncomfortable pigeonhole. Because well, to start with, to, to say to somebody, this, is, you know, this approach is non-directive. Non means don't do this, direct. So it's like, hold on, why don't you just tell me what I should do? So it seems like a, a slightly failed classification in the first part. So we were trying at, when in the early days of the School of Coaching to come to a better way of talking about that. And what we, the first distinction we came to, well, there's, there's the resources that exist over there in the person being coached. And my first job as a coach is kind of to exploit those resources, to help that person think for themselves, imagine for themselves, intuit for themselves, create for themselves, problem solve for themselves without being unduly influenced by the coach. So that's a way of asking questions, a very specific way of asking questions that, that isn't taught often enough or well enough. So there's, there's what happens over there. And you have to have the skills to exploit the resources over there. Then there's what happens over here in me, in the coach. So I need to be able to manage myself. Um, you know, what's going on in my head, whether I like or dislike the person, you know, all of these things. And also how I manage all the other resources that I have, my imagination, my problem-solving capacity, my, my past experience. So how do I successfully bring what's going on over here to over there. That's the second set of skills. The, the third set of skills is, so there's over there, there's over here, and then there's between us. So that's about the dynamics. And that goes from being contractual, so quite superficial, to dynamic. And that's less superficial about how the relationship evolves um, and you know all the things one brings to relationships that can get confusing sexual politics, all kinds of stuff that come up in there, you know, family relations, all those things can come up. So there's, there's what happens between us, and one has to be competent to manage both the contractual, the superficial, and the, and the deeper stuff. And then the fourth place one needs to attend to, which I've alluded to already, is around us. So the context. And if you don't have, so there's a set of skills 
that are required for you to interact with the context, understand what's going on around the person you're coaching. So there are those four things. What's going on over there, over here, between us and around us. And that really is the essence of the, the model. And the reason it's a model is because it tells you that there are those four skill sets that you've got to become good at. And it embraces non-directive and directive approaches. So that's what it is. And you also mentioned a few minutes ago that you're quite keen to differentiate between coaching and some of these other helping by talking interventions like therapy and counselling. Yes, and I think that that's more uh, more about me than it is about anything else, because at some level you can't, because every interaction has a psychological component to it. But it's about how you put the safeguards in place that mean that you stay on the territory in which you're competent. Uh, I have a very good friend who was part of the School of Coaching, Judith Furman. But before that, she was a a highly trained and highly competent uh, psychotherapist. And if she bumped into a client who had a clear uh, psychological need, she would not go there with them. She would send them to somebody else because she didn't want to kind of taint the coaching relationship. Taint is the wrong word, but confuse the two relationships. That's a better way of putting it. So she was creating very strong boundaries, and I think she was right. My talking about leader performance right now is, is actually to try and, you see, this is the thing. We've, we've become slightly precious about coaching, and we kind of think it's important. And we sometimes forget that it's a verb and not a noun. <laughs> And, and the distinction there is that, is, is that, you know, I do leader performance. The way I go about doing that is through coaching. But what's important is not coaching. What's important is the leader performance. And so part of what's going on is to kind of downplay the coaching, which, as I've said, has been somewhat devalued, perhaps, over the years in being associated purely with learning and development. So that's, there's, a, there's also kind of a, a branding game going on with me uh, in, in this part of my life. Thank you very much. You're also going to be talking about Csikszentmihalyi's notion of flow. You've said already, in fact, you know, we have tennis to thank for you being here with us today. And, and you're, you're still a very passionate tennis player. So talk to us about this notion of flow in tennis or in sport and also how it might be relevant as a concept for coaches who are working at that strategic level. So uh, Galway had a distinction between what he calls self one and self two. So self one is a a state, a a mental state where there is interference, self-doubt, fear, worry, uh, trying to get it right, lots of trying. Uh, And and that's a a mental state in which lots of people exist for large parts of their life. We do live in a society that demands our compliance, that twists the human being in all kinds of ways. It becomes very difficult to express yourself fully. Self two, on the other hand, is when you are expressed in, in tennis, when you're hitting the ball freely, when you're not having to think through your strategy because one, you've practiced it so much, but also because when you're in self two, you have access to all your faculties, your imagination, your creativity. Your, so, so you operate swiftly. Uh, it's sublime. There's no thought. And you often surprise yourself by what you produce on the court. And Tim created that distinction uh, shortly after uh, Csikszentmihalyi famously wrote the book on flow, which he called the initial version was The Psychology of Happiness. So flow is a mental state in which there's no rumination or worry in which we perform to our best. 
And that for me, I, I, I'm a flow junkie. So, you know, I, I do lots <laughs> of things that generate flow. I love writing. I love cooking. I love gardening. I love playing tennis. And coaching falls into the same category. You know, I mentioned earlier that, that you know, the, the school of coaching focused on how to, that it was very much about the skills and the craft of coaching. And therefore, if I go back to Galway's terminology, I became very aware that the days in which I did my best coaching, I was not focused on my craft. I was focused on the person in front of me, totally focused on the person in front of me. And that any focus on my craft or worry about the next question to ask was indeed a distraction. And that if I could shift from a self-one worry, rumination, concern for my craft state into pure focus on the other person, I asked questions that surprised me. So it became clear to me, and we didn't major on this at the school because it, we, the school was really about getting the fundamentals of being a good coach in place. But then, so it was the next level up. My first job as a coach, when I show up in front of my client, was to be in self one. Sorry, self two, to be in flow. And, and my second job was to get my client into flow. Because if I, could, if I could do that, then they would do their best thinking. If they weren't worried about the consequences of their action, if, if they weren't concerned about, if I do that, people will think I'm silly. If, if you remove those kinds of things, people are immediately more creative. The conversations are more productive and more fun. As an example, a McKinsey consultant who was a partner and, and the managing partner of one of the European offices we would meet in his office and he'd do the usual charming things of making sure I had a coffee or water. And, and then he'd, then what it was driven by him, but I turned it into a ritual and which we then made explicit and did every time. He would listen to me. Uh, he would, so he would ask me a question, how are you, Miles? And how's business? And he was the only person so far I've ever let ask me that question inside a coaching relationship. Because I knew what he was doing was separating himself from the crazy world around him, his fellow partners, the politics of the office, the clients, and detaching himself from that and bringing himself to be fully present in the room. So I, I would answer those questions uh, and, and profited from his wisdom. And then we'd kind of, at a certain point, which would be signaled by one of us, we'd start moving into his world. And he had five different realms that he wanted to inquire of. I can't remember them all. One was his, was his client work. One was the management of his office. One was his own evolution as a leader. So you can see what they were. And he'd, he'd give me a summary of all of these five realms. And then at the end of it, I'd say very, very simply, so um, name, what's most interesting to talk about today? And in that moment, he was in flow. <laughs> and we had these wonderful conversations from there that usually lasted about 40, 45 minutes. And then I was on the train back to London. So flow is that moment when you've moved from apprentice to mastery. But when you're in that place, you do your best coaching. Whereas some people would say that to get into flow is a matter of luck and it's a gift. Actually, you can get better and better and better at getting into flow. Thank you. Uh, and you gave a, an example of a particular client there. You have worked across a number of organisations and sectors. Is there anything particular from your experience as a consideration or a tip for coaches working with senior leaders about getting them into flow? It's a great question. The process I described with his five realms and then asking him to focus is something that we at the School of Coaching call following interest, that then I, I kind of reinvented for simplicity as floodlight spotlight. 
And what floodlight spotlight goes to, it says that, okay, the, in the first step, it's floodlight. You shine your, the, the light of awareness and attention into every corner of the pitch. So, that, so there is a pitch. In other words, it wasn't about my friend's personal and private life and family life. It was the realm of his work. So we shone the, the, the light of, of attention and awareness into that. And he would speak about those things. And that was, you know, that uncovered stuff as he did it. And I, must, I might then, in that floodlight mode, might say, you, you haven't mentioned so much about this, or I didn't quite understand what you said there. So I, I might just bring attention to it in, in a more fulsome way. And then when, when floodlight has been done, then you say, okay, and which of those, of all the things you've said, is most interesting to talk further about? That spotlight. The magic of that process is, uh, is what brings people into flow nine times out of ten. And it's, it's actually, it replicates what we would do as an inner game on the tennis court in which you'd say to somebody, so what do you want to work on today? And they'd say, well, my backhand. And you'd say, okay, great. Let's hit some backhands. So they hit some backhands. You say, tell me what you're noticing. And they'll tell you, well, my feet feel heavy today. Um, so, and then you hit some more balls. And what do you notice this time? I have a slight pain in my wrist. Okay, hit some more balls. What do you notice now? I'm getting a kind of cramp in my thighs or something. Or, or you know, my, hip, my hips aren't moving properly. Okay, so you've said... Let's hit some more balls. But before you hit them, you said your feet, your wrist, and your, your hip rotation. So I'm going to ask you to hit some more balls. And of all those three things, tell me which stands out the most. They go back to the end of the court and they start hitting those balls. And in that moment, they become focused. And it's quite remarkable because the rest of the world disappears and they're, they're fully present in flow on the tennis court. And they come back and they say, oh, it's the rotation of the hips. Okay, well, okay. So hit some more balls and tell me on a scale of one to 10, how much rotation is there? Pretends a lot of rotation and zero is none at all. Now, they don't know technically the, exactly how much rotation is needed, but equally, I don't know, my, how, don't know how much arthritis they've got. So, you know, neither of us know. But in the process of experimentation and observing and noticing, they get to, the, the flow deepens and the intrinsic capacity to learn unconsciously kicks in and they find the level of rotation that makes them hit their best backhand. And it's, it's the most extraordinary thing in the world to see. Thank you. And I applaud the notion, the, uh, the term you use to describe yourself as a flow junkie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. May well introduce you in the keynote with that. <laughs> well, there you go. Your, <laughs> your prerogative. Your most recent book's Enabling Genius. Yeah. I'm interested to hear more about this notion of enabling genius and particularly linking it into how as coaches we might get leaders to the edge of their performance, how we might use that scaffolding. Okay. I'm I'm still uncomfortable with the way I'm I'm speaking about genius, if I if I'm absolutely frank and honest. Um and part of the motivation for using the, the word genius and and enabling genius is that when you talk to people about potential anybody from somebody on the street to somebody in the C-suite, that word just kind of glances off their eardrums and disappears off into the ether without actually having any impact. If, if on the other hand, you say genius, it stops people short because everybody knows there were only two geniuses and they were both men and they're dead. Uh, you know, Mozart and Einstein. So, you know, so it's like, so there's this, there's, there's this notion in our culture that that you know, people are, are gifted and, and they, they're, they're geniuses because they have a natural talent or they were born that way. 
which is just bullshit. Um, I, I was attacked at a conference a number of years back uh, when I was speaking on Enabling Genius and a guy came up to me wearing a, a, a blue blazer with brass buttons. So you, you kind of, you know that he was a, a, um, a dignitary in the local bowls club or something. And kind of, you know, you could kind of get the weight of, of, of all of that as he, and he was, he was spluttering with, I won't say rage, but something close to that. So you, you can't say everybody has genius. And I said, oh, okay, fine. So I said, do you believe that, people, that everybody has potential? He said, yes. So if I've understood then, everybody has potential, but it's capped just short of genius. And you can see the guy's kind of <laughs> construct kind of collapsing in front of you. And he turned out to be a lovely gentleman and said, we had a, a conversation and he went away to think about it. And that was brilliant. But that's the point. We, 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 can't, we can't in this day and age deny people their genius. So for me, genius is, is about having access to all your resources and about having the courage to express your talents and abilities in an uninhib uninhibited manner. So that's the measure of it. If I'm, if, I'm used, you know, if I'm using those resources and it's uninhibited, that sense of flow, then that for me is genius. And I want that for everybody. Uh, so that's, that's, that's where the, the, the notion kind of came from. And it gets more specific to say, see, the, the idea then is work out what you're, what you're naturally gifted you know, at. I've got the kind of the, the, the physical gifts of, of a human being who's relatively tall, relatively slender, um, relatively wiry and strong. You know, I've, I've got the, the right body shape to hit tennis balls. That's where the gifts are. And it's about 50% nature and 50% nurture. Let's work out what, what, my, what I'm good at, and then let's work the hell out of those so that I really exploit them to the best that can be. So that's where it starts from. And then it moves, so that, and that with that proposition, everybody can develop a unique individual genius is kind of one of the, it's, it's, it's number two of five propositions. But how you, then the question becomes, how do you exploit those? And we, we did a massive research project, 20 people over a period of about 18 months pulling together all we could find about people who uh, are, are the best at, are, are seen to be geniuses, are seen to be extraordinary. And out of that, a number of things became clear. One was that those people have a great sense of their own identity. So if in, go back into my world of tennis, some of you will be familiar with Federer and Nadal, two of the greatest tennis players ever to hit the ball. They both have a really clear sense of their unique individual genius, of their identity. They understand that identity. On the tennis court, at least. I can't speak for them anywhere else. And if you look at them, they're both completely different. They're different physical shapes. They do different things with the ball. But if you don't understand what that identity is, you start doing things the way somebody else does it, or, or believing your teachers, or, or following the competency model of your organization, rather than learning to grow from within. So if you, once you understand that identity, that unique individual genius, you begin to understand what your tactics are. I, my, my genius on the tennis court is big Zen cat. Big, uh, for people of my age, I hit the ball very, very hard and very deep into the court. Cat is I finish the point within three hits of the ball. So it's, it's a very aggressive, kill the ball, kill the point quickly, a very dynamic. And Zen is about being in self too. Uh, it, and it's not a solemn Zen, it's, it's, a, it's a giggling Zen. Now, once I know that, my strategies become clear and my tactics become clear. 
Once I know that, I, I know what I need to develop. So it, this, and, this, and the same thing happens then with a the leader. If I have to help somebody understand their identity as a leader, they don't try to become Churchill or, or Branson. They try to become themselves and they understand who they are as a leader and how they show up. Or they understand who they, who they are as a coach and how they show up. So, you, the, the, so there's identity, there's desire, which is about motivation, and there's mindset. Uh, and and the, the element that brings all of those things together, that locks them together, is about uh, learning. So because in each of those areas, those other three areas, identity, desire, and mindset, you can, get, you can improve and get better and evolve. So when I'm working with people as a coach to get right to the, the kind of the, the point of uh, the pragmatic point of your question, David, it's, it's I make sure that I have a conversation with everybody I work with, particularly if, if they're a leader, on what, on what their leadership identity is. A lady that I was working with in, in a city council in charge of a big department wants to become, in a number of years' time, the CEO of a similar city council, either where she is or in a new place. And I asked her, so what marks you as a team leader? And she said, well, I'm, 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 a, I'm a nice person. I'm very nurturing. I'm very good at taking care of my team. And I said, oh, right, okay. And I'm kind of stifling a yawn. But we pushed. I pushed more into what makes the difference. And, and it took her a while because she's a woman in a very male environment. And actually, what we got to was what she's really good at is strategic insight. She sees stuff. Her perspective is unbelievable. And as I spoke to her team, what became really clear was what they, yes, they, they felt a great empathetic bond with her and they enjoyed that she took care of them. But what they really wanted from her was a strategic insight. So once we understood that emerging leader identity, we could, we could then work with it um, and develop it and push it in the, in the direction of travel it was going in. So one, I understand what that, that, that identity is. Two, I understand their direction of travel. So uh, a, a lady I was working with last year, no, the year before actually, was setting up a small private equity um, business in the city of London. And she had a very clear vision and, and she was very clear with me that this was something she needed to execute over the next couple of years. Uh, and then she'd probably hand it on to somebody else uh, in a kind of a, as a, a, an oper a chief operating officer type role. And one day she rang me and she was very, very excited because her older brother, who was a, a, a legend in, in the area in which she works, was so impressed by what she was doing that he wanted to join the team. And I just said, no, 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 on no account. And she was really shocked because she's used to this rather nice and charming Miles Danny with his slightly Irish accent, listening intently. Said, no, on no account. And she said, what? I said, no. I said, that's completely discordant with your direction of travel. He will take over. You, you hold him in awe. Um, he's powerful. He's you know, all of these things. On no account. And, she, and you could see her. The excitement drained from her. And then she went, oh, my God, I almost made a tragic mistake. So I need to understand what somebody's direction of travel is. That's a combination of goals, purpose. It's slightly, it's not, it's not kind of the, that, that, that's important. That, that's kind of the, the, the desire, the motivation element. And then the mindset is a bit that I'm doing a lot of work on um, with various people at the moment, particularly in these times when so many people are weary and resilience is at the top of people's agenda. So I'm helping people develop uh, not, not the mindset that they've inherited accidentally, but I'm helping people be very clear about what the mindset is that's going to help them along the road that is their direction of travel, that's congruent with their leadership identity. And, and by, by framing those conversations, 
I'm, I'm doing something that I have sufficient science for and sufficient experience in, in doing that I know that I can push people to the outer edges of, of, of their, their potential, into their genius, in a way that isn't about my whims or my prejudice or my pet philosophies. So that's, that's what that's about. I, I've spoken for a long time. I hope that was coherent. Absolutely. Very, very interesting. Thank you very, very much. And uh, thank you for all your answers. I'd like to close, if I may, with the question that we like to ask of all of our guests. Um, and I think I know what this might be because you hinted at it earlier, but let's find out. So what's one exciting emerging aspect of the world of coaching that's really got your focus and energy right now? I've got, got a kind of a contradictory answer. So I, I did, a number of years ago, begin looking at how do you use technology to replace the coach? And if you think of something very simple like floodlight and spotlight, it actually contains the answer. You, you define a realm in which somebody wants to work on, their time management, and you do a floodlight. So you program into a, a system the questions that you might ask, that you, you, know, you and I could come up with a list of you know, six good questions to ask some people about what they're doing currently or with their time. And then you could say, so of all of those things you said, which is the most interesting to try and work on? And they say in or type in their response, and then you'd be able to say, okay, so what options do you have to improve that? And you could, you could ask another few questions to, you know, to help with that. Like, if this was perfect, what would it look like? And then, and it's, so I, I've said enough. You can imagine that you've got a system of online coaching, and we've developed that. It's called, you'll find it at playboostnow.com, um, and we're doing enormous work in China. Um, it's 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 one part of a of a four part learning program on uh, on Boost. Uh, so they they learn through avatars and role plays, uh, and then we help them translate what they've learned into behaviors in the workplace. And we're getting extraordinary results with with that. I'm, I've actually stood back from that because it's now mostly about the, the content creation, and I've so my my creative piece has been done, and I'm now back in the world of coaching and coach training and, and leader performance. But that's, that, that still fascinates me, and I'm still part of the team as we try and make that even more and more powerful, bringing in notions of nudging and things like that as well. Uh, and I think there's, you know, you, you look at these diet apps that you can get out there. There's lots of very subtle technology in there that nudges people that, you know, to, to move forward and take the next step. So that's interesting. But actually, the, the, the place that I go back to every time is, is, is much more fundamental and hardly new. But it is the bit that I think is the most, it, that for me is the most interesting. And for the people I tend to work with, the place where there's most fun and learning. And, and it's, it's actually remembering that coaching is a craft, a, a, a verb, uh, not a noun. And, and your job is to get better and better at it. My concern in that realm is that there is so much out there which is academic and bringing in kind of the neurosciences and all these other things. It's kind of almost more philosophical it is than practical. And my, my desire is that people are unbelievably good at the, the fundamental skills of helping somebody else uncover their own potential through what we would in the past have called a non-directive approach. Thank you so very, very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have this conversation. Mine too. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Wales Coaching Centre based at the University of South Wales. We are a centre of excellence for coaching and mentoring 
here to support the development and growth through training, qualifications, conferences, CPD events, and our community of practice. To find out more, search USW Coaching and Mentoring.